one of the biggest things that I tell parents when we, and I tell parents and players when a kid comes into our program, is that if when your son leaves our program, if he's not a better young man, then we haven't done our job. Welcome to Ahead of the Curve. This is your host, Jonathan Gellner. Today we have the pleasure of talking with Huntsville High School head coach and Team USA world title holder and development coach of the year, David Sharp. Coach Sharp and I discuss how we can make our practices more efficient, what they do in the fall that does not involve picking up a baseball, and we discuss how they develop the culture with their five pillars at Huntsville. You better have your pen and paper out for this one with Coach David Sharp. Coach Sharp, thank you for joining us on Ahead of the Curve. Thank you so much for having me on. Looking forward to talking with you here over the next couple of minutes. And um, you have run a great show, and, and I'm honored to be asked to be on it and thrilled to, to be on. So ready to get going if you are. Well, I'm honored and thrilled that, uh, that you would decide to come on and, and share your infinite wisdom with us. But tell us about your background and why you decided to get into coaching. Well, I'm currently uh, in my 24th year of coaching baseball. Um, I spent nine years at my high school. Uh, where I went, where I played at Lee High School here in Huntsville, Alabama. And the last uh, 15 years I've been at Huntsville High School, the last nine as the, the head coach. And um, I've lived a very blessed life. My high school coach, his name is Butch Weaver. He's a great man, great baseball coach, and he is still the head coach at Lee High School here in Huntsville. He is the reason that I wanted to go into coaching because of what he stood for and how he treated people and how he pushed people and demanded people's excellence. So that he was the first, uh, you know, one of the first people that showed me the way. Obviously, my father growing up taught me, you know, the ins and outs of baseball and taught me how to hopefully be a man and treat people right. And then I moved to Huntsville High School. And like I said, I've been there for 15 years. I worked for Mark Mincher there as an assistant coach for him for nine years. And in both of those gentlemen, Coach Weaver and Coach Mincher, are getting in, or just got inducted into the uh, Alabama Baseball Coaches Association Hall of Fame this year. So. To say I've been with some great men is an understatement and something that, I, that I'm very happy of and very proud of my background with those two gentlemen. Well, that's awesome. And I, and I love that, that you took an interest because they basically took an interest in you and, and helped you become, become a young man, which I think is, is why all of us get into coaching in the first place. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, and, and I think as I've gotten older, you know, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. We want to win every single game that we play. That's, that's you know, we all do. And if you don't want to win, we don't need to be coaching. But above the wins and losses on the scoreboard, you know, we want to win. We want, we want our players to win in life and become productive citizens in life. Because, you know, the percentages are that not many of them are going to go on to play college baseball. And then very, very, very few percentage that they're going to go on and make a living out of baseball. So, uh, you know, we want to treat them, you know, we want to teach them and hopefully they become good young men, good husbands, good fathers, and good productive citizens in our world today. Well, that's awesome. So my next question, uh, it, it's similar to, to what we're talking about now, but what does it mean to be a Huntsville Panther and what do you guys stress to your players regarding that? Well, we have a very special program at Huntsville. I tell people all the time that we have what I would call good stock, which means that we have good people in our program from our administration at our school down through our parents and then into our players. And the assistant coaches that have been at Huntsville High School and the assistant coaches that are there now are, you know, 
are, are very good, are very good baseball coaches. But again, going back to what I said earlier, they they care for the kids as people more than they do as players. And you know, we, we do have a we do uh, have high expectations of our players. And what does it mean to be a Huntsville Panther? Well, number one, we want our kids to have fun, our players to have fun. Um, because if they don't have fun, and I know that's a cliche, and it's easy to say that, and you know, and and to interject something, and it's a lot more fun when you win than when you lose. I can assure you that. But we want, you know, we want them to have fun uh, in our program. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we want them to become a better person. We want them to compete. You know, I'm a I'm a little bit of old, uh, have got a little bit of old school in me. We want them to compete and be tough and get after it and play hard and uh, and, and go out and play hard and. And not worrying about making a mistake, but go out. And if you make a mistake, you do it going as hard as you can go. Off the field, you know, we, we have high expectations of our players. Uh, we expect them to do right. Uh, we expect them to be leaders in our school. And, and for the most part, you know, almost to 100%, our players are leaders in our school and our players are leaders in our community. And, you know, we, we, we care about them as people more than we do as players. And, you know, I, we're not going to love a kid that is the starting shortstop more than we love a kid that is a role player and may play one out of every four games or doesn't play at all. You know, we're going to care for those kids. We're going to love those kids regardless of what position they play, where they hit in the lineup, anything like that. And, you know, that that's what it means to us is we do. I refer to us as having a baseball family. We have three teams. We've got a freshman team, a JV team, and a varsity team. And we have 65 kids, 65 players in our program. And we, and I tell people, we don't have three different teams. We have one family. We have one program. And we, we try to teach our kids to be a part of something that's bigger than them. And that's the Huntsville High School Baseball Program. So, you know, we're very happy with, with where our program is. We always want to continue to get better and better and win, win more and more. But, you know, you take a step back at sometimes and you have to look at the overall view and, you know, it's it's a great place to be, and uh, we have kids that really represent our program the, the right way. Well, that's awesome. So let's go ahead and let's just dig in because you're getting me fired up over here. What does a week look like in the fall? What are you guys focused on? And you know, just take us through what what your fall consists of. Well, you know, our players. Whenever we finish up the previous school year, April or May, depending number one if we make the state playoffs, and number two how far we get in the state playoffs. They've played an entire high school season, and from that, they go into their summer travel ball, their summer, you know, their summer teams, and play all summer, June and July. And for a high school kid to begin throwing in January, February, March, April, May, June, and July, that's a lot of throwing. And when we come back to school in early August, the biggest thing, and, and I know that you know people discuss this and talk about this all the time, but the biggest thing that I think we do is we completely shut their arms down and we do not pick up a ball in August, September, and halfway through October. Our school system, we have a fall break, which is the third or the, excuse me, the second week of October. And again, we shut down arms August and September and halfway through October. And when we come back from fall break, we will then begin our off season, our long toss program. But what we do beginning in August is twice a week. That's when we lift heavy and we're trying to build mass and we're trying to put on strength and we're trying to put on good weight. So twice a week, we, we're in the weight room, you know, doing our various core lifts, doing our, our various lifts, 
lifts that, that will help us put on some mass muscle. And then twice a week, we are, uh, we have our speed and agility uh, and our core training where we're wor- obviously working speed and agility because we do want to get stronger, but we don't want to get stronger, uh, at the expense of, uh, of not keeping our flexibility, uh, becoming more agile and hopefully getting faster. And then once a week, we started this a few years ago and it's been one of the best things that we've done. We swim once a week during the fall. Hmm. And we do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it breaks up the monotony of just in the weight room, in the weight room, in the weight room all the time. It gets them in the pool. It gives them something a little bit different to look forward to. And swimming, you know, and, and our players enjoy it. But when we get done each day, they're give out. You know, mm-hmm. we're not going down there doing can openers and cannonballs and things like that. We go down and we try to swim uh, a quarter of a mile each time, which we which is made up of various relay races. Um, so we really push them in the pool. Uh, it's great for their flexibility. It's good for their bodies because, you know, swimming may be the best exercise for the body because there's a lot less wear and tear on your body. So, you know, we, we go there and uh, we swim once a week there. So, and that takes place all the way through October. Um, and then in October, when we come back from fall break, we begin our long toss program. And, you know, we, we, we have many things that we need to improve on and do better at. But one of the biggest things that I think that, that we do a good job of at Huntsville High School is our long toss program. We've seen a lot of added velocity over the years. And because of that, we've had a good number of pitchers that have signed at the high division one level, uh, over the last four or five years. And what we do is twice a week, our players will, will get out there and we will, they'll partner up, obviously, and we'll start on two knees and they obviously turn, turn slightly towards their arm side and we'll start for uh, at 10 yards, that, which is a very easy throw. They will throw for about two to three minutes there from 10 yards. After two to three minutes, we'll back them up to 20 yards. After two or three minutes, we'll back them up to 30 yards. After two or three minutes, we'll back them up to 40 yards. And then as we continue to build arm strength, we will eventually back them up to where we can get to 50 yards and sometimes 60 yards. Now, one of the big things that we stress when we're doing our long toss program is that as we are backing up, we're starting at 10 yards and backing up, we do not make what we call a stressful throw, that every throw that we make has some air under it, and we're not really making a stressful throw on on our arm. We're still stretching it out. We're still getting our arm loose. And so after we back up to 50 or or 60 yards on two knees, we'll then stand them up, and they've got about five minutes on their own to back up. This is on their feet. Now, this Mm -hmm. is when they're, they're crow hopping. They're resetting their feet. They'll back up as far as they can for about five minutes, and they will still you know, make some long toss throws with some air underneath the ball, still not making a stressful throw. It's not everything they've got. They've got that, you know, that typical air under the, uh, air under the ball, you know, stretch it out, long toss. After we, after they reach as far as they can, we then will tell them, okay, we're moving back in. And as we move back in from that point on, every throw that they make, is everything they've got. So we've really stretched our arm out, stretched our arm out, stretched our arm out. And now as we're coming back in, we are really resetting our feet and it's, and, and we don't, we don't have any air under the ball. Everything is aligned. Now they're not going to be able to reach their partner from, 
120 from 120 or however far it is out there to our fence, mm-hmm. but they're going to, every throw that they make is going to be on a line. They're going to make two or three throws. Then they'll move up five yards, make two or three throws, move up five yards, make two or three throws where they will end up at about 90 feet. And they are, and when they get to 90 feet, they really are zoned in and they're not playing burnout, but they're thinking they're playing burnout. It's everything they've got. And it's, and, and once we work back in, it forces them to get their fingers back up on top of the ball, which is, you know, every throw that you make in baseball, whether you're a position player, pitcher, catcher. When you get back to 90 feet, you really have to work on getting your fingers on top of the ball and throwing it downhill. And then, obviously, you know, we stretch beforehand. We stretch afterwards. But that's one of the, in my opinion, that's one of the better things that we do and has really increased our velocity for a lot of our players and a lot of their arm strength. I think you're the first coach that's come on here that said that they've gotten in the pool. But I'll tell you what, that's that's as good as, good of a workout as you're going to get. Yes, it is. And again, our players enjoy it because it's something different. But at the same time, you know, again, it's less wear and tear on their bodies. And, you know, and it pushes them from a cardio standpoint. And, you know, and, and also everything that we do down there, the pool is is competition. So in the fall, you know, some of them are good swimmers and some of them are awful. But what it does in the fall, I find out right off the beginning who is going to compete and who is who is not afraid, you know, to push themselves to the limit and who really wants to win. And, you know, you find out real quick, you don't have to be the world's best swimmer, but you can help yourself win, help your team win that relay race. Sure. Do yeah. you have any other examples of what you guys do to integrate competition and practices? Uh, yes, we do. And, you know, as as all baseball coaches, probably some of the best or probably most of the best stuff that I have, I've stolen it from other people. You know, we, we compete and we try to compete in as many things as we do. Obviously, when we're forced inside to go into our indoor hitting facility, you know, if you go in there day after day after day because of, you know, temperatures in the 20s or rain and rain and snow or whatever, it gets it gets real monotonous to go in there and and just hit 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 hit. So we have a, a we have a little contest in, in our hitting facility. You know, once we get in there, that you score points for different things. You know, L, uh, a line drive off the L screen is five points. A line drive off the back screen is ten points. A line drive off the side nets is three points. A swing and miss is minus three. A, a routine ground ball is zero because I don't want to take points away from you. You know, I could go into that more in depth, you know, possibly later. But that's one thing that we do. And our kids really enjoy that. They get in there and they talk a little smack, you know, because we've got four cages. We'll get them up in four different teams and, and score those points and see who comes out on top. You know, and it's very relative to the game because what are we teaching? You know, we're trying to teach them where you're going to score big. You're going to score big with that five point off that L screen or that 10 point off the, off the back square. So you're really trying to trying to you know simulate the game as much as you can but maybe the best thing that we do from a competition standpoint is something that i got from jack leggett at clemson it's it's a double play drill that we do and our players really love it it basically fit the infield versus the outfield and what we'll do is our outfielders will get a bat and we have a coach that's standing up at the plate off to the side and he is just short tossing from the side he's short tossing to them and their job is to hit a hard ground ball 
through the infield. Now, I know we could, we could discuss launch angle and all that, the hot topic hitting now, but our outfielders are up at the plate and they're getting a short toss from the side and their job is to hit a hard ground ball through the dirt. Now, here's how the outfielders score. If the outfielders hit a ground ball through the infield, they get plus one point. If the outfielder pops up or hits a pop fly to the outfield, that's minus one point. If an outfielder hits a line drive, I, I'm sort of the umpire here. Mm-hmm. If they hit a line drive that doesn't hit the dirt, we don't take a point off or give them a point. We give them a zero, and they get to go again. So as long as they hit line drives, they get to hit, 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 hit. But once they pop up, that's minus one point for the outfield. If they hit a ground ball through the infield, that's plus one for the infield. So on the flip side of that, our infielders are at their positions. and obviously. This drill is designed for the infielders, but it also allows our outfielders to get some swings. And our infielders, if they field a ball, now when the outfielder hits it, he's trying to beat out. He he he's running to first base. They're trying to beat out a they're trying to beat out an infield single or beat out a force play at first. And if the infielder if they field it, then they turn a double play. Then the infielders get plus one point. If there is a if the infielder gets it and we get the force at second base but we do not finish the double play turn at first it's a zero nobody gets a point so as long as the infield gets that force at second base it's a zero nobody gets a point there's not a point taken away but how do the infielder score a point they've got to roll that double play and beat the guy getting down the first baseline and then number two if the or, or, or moving on if the infielder if they boot a ball they misplay a ball Whatever happens, they make an error. We don't get the force at second base. It's minus one for the infielders. Gotcha. So that's how the that's how the infielders and outfielders score there, and it creates it creates a big time competition. And our kids really get after it, talk a little smack, and you know I'm there I'm there behind second base, uh, umpiring, and I've been known to. I've been known. I'm a defensive guy, mm-hmm. so I've been known to. I've been known to cheat a little bit for the defense, which makes the outfielders, the outfielders that are hitting even, you know, a little bit more mad. But it creates great competition at practices, and you know, we always have something on the line. Maybe it's four extra poles for conditioning. You know, maybe it's going to get all the balls that you popped up. So there's always something that they're playing for, and that's probably the single best thing we do from a competition standpoint. In our practices. Well, that's great. You also mentioned that you guys are very intentional about building young men. So, what are some ways that you guys do that? One of the biggest things that I tell parents when we, and I tell parents and players when a kid comes into our program, is that if when your son leaves our program, if he's not a better young man, then we haven't done our job. And that's number one of important thing. That's number one of importance. And speaking of that, what do we do to try to to build young men? We have a thing that's called the Panther Pillars. And as you know, a pillar is you know it's a pole or it's a it's something to that that holds up a structure and it, it's a it's a solid foundation. And like I said we have Panther Pillars, and there are about nine or ten or twelve uh, things that we ask our players to do. Uh, while they're in our program and just give some examples. Number sure. one, to show random acts of kindness, open doors for people, smile to people. You know, we want them to use please. Thank you. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. You're welcome. 
We want them to treat females with respect. We want them to be the best teammate that they can be and be committed to our teammate, be, be committed, committed to our program and the teammates. And the number one thing that we have at the top of our Panther pillars is to show appreciation and gratitude to parents and guardians and family loved ones, because sometimes we don't let those around us know how much we care for them and how much we love them. And, you know, the word love, you know, I used to be a little bit fearful to use that word, but, our, you know, that word is used a lot in our program. Our players use that word a lot. We use it a lot. You know, and, and that's one thing that we want to make sure that our players do, and that's show appreciation for their parents, their loved ones, because there is a lot of, you know, there's a lot of sacrifices that parents make to try and get those players to to become good men. Uh, you know, we do other things like we go and volunteer at the Miracle League uh, twice a fall, and that's a night that the Miracle League loves that we come out to, but our players get more out of that than than anything and the miracle league is a it's a baseball league here in huntsville you know that, that that's put together for disadvantaged kids kids that are in wheelchairs kids that can't carry on a normal life per se as we do and uh, it really hits home with our players and our players enjoy it more than the people we go and volunteer for uh, we volunteer at a fall festival here give back to our community and we do a lot of different things off the field we every year we have a senior retreat where we take our seniors off for a weekend and just go have a good time and don't talk about baseball just enjoy each other we try to have a team night once a month where we go eat go bowling or go do something else one of the you know this is a very small event but it's something that our families like is our big rival school when we play them in football the coaches we put together a huge tailgate and this is the coaches do all this work and we cook for all of our players, parents, administration, anyone else that wants to come, we cook hamburgers that night and tell our parents that you know, this is a way that we want to show your appreciation. You sit back, you kick back, let us do all the work tonight. So we try that family atmosphere that we try to create, that gives players a sense of belonging to something that's greater than them. And if they have a sense that they're wanted and if they have a sense that they are part of something that they are a part of something and that and that it's something worthwhile that a lot that alone will keep kids in your program and maybe keep them out of doing something that they that they're not supposed to be doing and 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 ultimately it leads them to be a success as a person so those are just some of the things that we do and again i could go more in depth with those panther pillars but you know i don't want to continue on and on and and i can share those with you or someone later on if need be no, I love that, and and that's very unique that uh, you guys get together, especially as a group like that with the parents, and and making that a priority in your program. Which I know parents get a bad rap. I think that that it may be just that the squeaky wheels that get the grease, uh, you know, as they say. But but that's really cool. I'd I'd never heard anybody else doing something like that. I, I'm not dumb. I'm not naive. I, I hear and and I see it sometimes for myself that that sometimes in in this day and age. Dealing with parents is getting more and more something that coaches have to do. And I will say this, at Huntsville High School, we are very fortunate that our parents are bought in to what we do. And a lot of that is, you know, letting the parents know where they stand. And, and I don't say this in an arrogant way or a boastful way, but letting the parents know, you know, where is the line? and one of my big words that I use over and over and over with people talking about parents is the word consistency. 
you've got to be consistent. If you're gonna if you're gonna talk to one parent about playing time, which I never do, but if you're gonna talk to one player about playing time, or you let one parent bend your ear, or anything like that, you're opening the door up to everyone else. And at Huntsville High School, we have some phenomenal parents that really are invested in our program. I think that we do a good job on the front end, letting the parents know, do we need parents in our program? Absolutely we do. We need parents to help you know, with all the different facets of our program. Raising money, obviously, is one of those volunteering and doing all kinds of things. And our parents do a phenomenal job of it. But we also, I believe, do a good job of letting the parents know where that line is, you know, and you're welcome to come to practice and you can sit in the stands and you can watch, but you don't need to talk to Johnny. You don't need to talk to little Johnny and tell him what he needs to do. You don't need to come in that indoor facility. You know, you, what we want our parents to do is sit back, relax and enjoy and watch us play. And then, you know, after that, you know, when you get in the car with them, Hey, you're their mom and dad. You can do what you want to do. But when they're with us, they need to be listening to us because you're putting your kid in a difficult situation because he better be listening to us. But at the same time, he's supposed to listen to his mom and dad. But, you know, I hear horror stories about parents, but thankfully we've, we've had some great parents at Huntsville high school. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to say that about our parents. Well, that's awesome. And, and, and I love that. And, and it leads me into the next thing that I was going to ask. We keep talking about Huntsville. Now, what is something unique to you guys that most teams don't do? Well, one of the things I believe is we do a lot of off the field team building, and you know, and that and that was something that I that I mentioned for you, I mentioned to you previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of those things that I mentioned where I think are unique. Another thing that we do that I don't know is done. I I, I can't say that other people don't do it. I, I don't know, but one of the things that we do is that we do drug test our baseball players. And obviously we have to get the correct documentation up front and, uh, you know, from parents that they're willing for us to drug test them. And we've never had a parent that said they didn't want their kid drug tested, but we do drug test. And, um, and, and there's a reason for that. And that's because number one, we're protecting, we're protecting those good kids that are in our program because as coaches, and you're very aware of this and all the other coaches that are listening to this are very aware of this. We spend more time with other people's kids, especially during the spring. We spend more time with them than we do with our own kids and we do with our own family. And I've got two wonderful kids and a phenomenal wife that are very supportive of me and are thrilled, you know, that, that I am the coach there and it, and, and they're, they're part of it. I mean, that Huntsville baseball is all we know as a family. And, you know, if, if I'm going to spend that much time away from my family, I expect kids to do what they're supposed to do off the field. And, you know, we have an alcohol drug policy. And one of the things is if, if a player, if a player gets caught drinking alcohol, if a player gets caught with drugs, then he has a, he has a punishment that he has to do. And part of that punishment is suspension of games. In a calendar year, if a kid gets caught again, then, then he's, he's kicked off the team for that year. And that's not, you know, we're not on a witch hunt trying to find everybody. We're not out looking for it. But, you know, I tell our kids, if you're doing that, I hope that we catch you. And why? It's not because I want to punish the kid, but it's because that maybe we can turn their life around and take something away from them that they want, which is playing baseball. And it may force them to make better decisions off the field, which ultimately 5, 10, 20 years down the road in their life is more important than 
them playing second base or center field at Huntsville High School. So that's one of the things that we really that we really abide to. And I'm not naive. I'm not stupid. We can't babysit our kids, our players, 24 hours a day. And, you know, with, with the way things are in our society today, the percentages, you know, that, that kids are getting involved with things more and more, it's scary to think about. But having what we have in place, we hope, can serve as a deterrent to kids that, hey, you know, I can't go do this on Friday night with y'all because I may get caught and may not be able to play baseball anymore. So that's one of the things that, that we're proud of that we do. And top of the show, I spoke about Butch Weaver and Martin Mincher, uh, two Hall of Fame coaches that I worked for. You know, Coach Mincher told me years ago, you have any rule that you put into place, you have to be willing to lose your best player. And that's something that we're not scared of. You know, that word consistency where, you know, you've got, well, we're not going to punish this kid because he's our starting shortstop compared to we're going to punish this kid because he never plays. That never factors into our decision. You know, that word, as I used earlier, consistency is a big deal to us. So that's something that we really, really, we like having that over our kids. It's something that we're proud of. And again, hopefully it, deter- it serves as a deterrent for kids. Oh, that's fantastic. So that basically rounds out uh, the fall for you guys, I'm assuming. So we take our break, we come back from winter break, and we, we start back in January. And something interesting that I saw on social media a couple of weeks ago is you gave a presentation over practice organization advice, and I would love to hear what you have to say about anything regarding that. You know, I was taught a long time ago about commitment. I was taught a long time ago about time management and making the most of your time. And Nothing infuriates me more than going to watch somebody practice and see a bunch of wasted time. Mm, And we're not going to go out and practice for four hours just to say that we practiced for four hours because, you know, we may have gone out and wasted four hours of our life and got nothing done. But we do try to run a very fast-paced practice. And our practices, again, you know, we're in North Alabama. And, you know, we're not up in Chicago and Indianapolis where it's just, you know, highs are in the single digits but it does get pretty cold down here and uh and you know in the 20s and 30s for highs sometimes so our practice is sort of you know dependent upon the weather but if we get a day where we can go outside you know our practice plan would be something like we obviously start with a you know we'll go down and we'll team stretch and we'll, we'll run then have a team static stretch from that point on, we'll break up into two groups where one of our groups will go to what we call our bands, bars, and weights, where they're working, you know, their bands. We've got some bars where they get loose with, and, and then they've got a shoulder circuit with their weights, while the other half is doing a dynamic warm-up. They then swap up, and then we're ready to start throwing. But one of the things that we incorporated a couple years ago, that we'll, we'll get our, our non-POs, these are our position players, and we'll put them into two groups. And... What we'll do is group one may be down throwing, getting ready for practice, while group two, now again, you're, you're, you're only taking half of them so you can get a lot more done at this time, while group two goes and may work on a specific area of concern that we have. Maybe we've been in the last two weeks in games that we haven't been able to bunt real well, or let's say that we've gotten awful reads against a left-hander when we're stealing, or we've gotten bad jumps against a right-hander, or anything little like that, we can go and take half of our players, and 
we can go up to the plate and then we'll work on, you know, our sacrifice bunting, drag bunting, our push bunting, all that. And again, we've only got half of them there so we can get a lot more done. Then, you know, and, and again, I, I say that we do it that way. You know, some days we'll take infielders in one group and outfielders in another group. And while the outfielders are throwing, maybe our infielders are working through our little push through progression drill that we have just for, for fundamentals. And then when the infielders go to throw, the outfielders can maybe go work on, you know, their angles or getting behind balls or, you know, working their feet through the catch, all that kind of stuff. So it's something that you can really pinpoint some things and you're not, you don't have as many players there and you're sort of, and I don't want to, I hate to say this, but you're sort of killing two birds with one stone Mm -hmm. because you've got, you're in a five minute period, you're working five minutes with outfielders and the other, the, the infielders are throwing. So you're getting a lot done from there. What we usually do and, I always put our team defensive stuff at the very beginning of practice for a couple of reasons. Number one is they're a little bit more mentally fresh at that time. And number two, I think, I think it shows the players how important it is, you know, when you're working bunt coverages, first and thirds, rundowns, fly balls, tandems, all that kind of stuff. And so we do that at the beginning of practice for those two reasons. From there, we may go into a team-specific drill. Uh, we may split up into infield and outfield where our outfielders can go into our indoor facility and get their rep swings in while our infielders are working on ground balls, and then we swap it up. And, you know, we, we have some drills that we do that we do in practice as well. And then for, from that, you know, we can go into a team period where maybe we're going to scrimmage that day or maybe it's a, you know, it's a batting, you know, BP on the field where it's warm enough. We could take BP on the field, you know, and it's, it's all planned out and, you know, could go into a lot of detail there. But, you know, from, from time standpoint, it's sort of hard to do that. But, sure. you know, we, we try to be organized. We try not to have any standing around, no wasted time. And, you know, if we get out there and we get done what we need to get done, and we're out there for two hours, then we're going home after two hours. If we get out there and we slop around and we're, we're not doing what we're, you know, we're not having a productive practice, then we'll stay longer. But we're not going to go out and practice for four hours just to go tell everybody we practiced four hours. We're going to get done what we need to get done, fast paced, get after it. And, and one of the big things, and I think I've tried to do a better job of the second part of what I'm about to tell you as I've gotten older. Mm-hmm. But number one, I try to put a tremendous amount of pressure on our players in practice. And then when we get into the game, try to let them play. Now, you know, that's not always the case because you still get fired up a little bit during the game. Right. But I, I've tried to do a better job of just sitting back and letting them play in the games and putting that practice, putting that pressure on them at practice by creating competition. You know, some other, we've gotten two great drills from, you know, an hour and a half from here is Vanderbilt University. And, you know, if we don't use them as a resource, then we're crazy not to. You know, Coach Bohannon at Alabama, Coach Thompson at Auburn, they've always had an open door to come and talk to them. And we've done that in the past. Um, but we've got some things, two things that we really, that we got from Vandy that we really use in practice. We call one of them the Vandy drill. And then the other one, we call it a minute to win it. And they're two different things. And, you know, for listeners, I'll be glad if someone wants to contact me, I'd be glad to go in into detail with that. But that's what we do with our practices. We play music just about all the time at our practices, except for our team defensive period, because that's when a lot of learning goes on. When we're out taking batting practice, when we're, 
you know, competing in that double play drill that I told you about earlier that I stole from Clemson. Mm-hmm. When we're taking rep ground balls or we're taking rep fly balls, we've got music going on. Why? Number one, I like music. The players like music. But number two, we're not playing a game that's a real quiet game. There's going to be you know, noise from the stands. And I think it, it's great to get them acclimated to playing and practicing I don't want to use the word in a loud environment, but when there's when there's noises and things going on, and plus it's a little bit upbeat too. So yeah, we, you know, I, we we do we use music a lot in our practice. Well, that's awesome, and I would love to hear more about the two Vandy drills if you don't mind going into some detail with those. Absolutely, uh, one of them, as I said, we call it the Vandy drill, and we got it from going up to Vandy a couple years ago. Uh, they call it the square drill. And some of your, someone may have already seen this before, but we call it obviously the Vandy drill because we got it from them. It takes a lot of preparation and a lot of planning. And, and what it is, is you've got four guys hitting fungo and they all have a bucket of baseballs. All of the infielders are up on the edge of the dirt, second base, or excuse me, third base, shortstop, second base, and first base. They're all up on the edge of the grass. And all you're doing is just rep ground balls to them one after another. You've got a, you've got four guys hitting fungo. You've got four guys that are feeding those fungo guys. So it's about four, three to five minutes of just ground ball, ground ball, ground ball, ground ball, ground ball. You got four fungos going at once. All the infielders, they filled the ball. They put it in the bucket right beside them. So there's no throws involved in this. All right. So this is the infield portion of it. While the infield is working, There's a coach out in the outfield working on drop steps, working on angles, working on a dive drill, working on different things with the outfielder. There's also a coach in the bullpen working with catchers. They're working on receiving, you know, the different, they're working on receiving that pitch down low, working on the pitch away, the pitch in. They're working on, uh, they're working on blocking. And then then they'll eventually move down the right field line where they're throwing down the right field line um, as we get moving. But it's, it's really, there is a ton going on. So the first phase of the bandy drill, you've got all four, all four infielders up. Fungo, 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 ball that's in the bucket. Then you move to the second part of that drill where the, the, uh, the infielders back up and whoever's hitting to third baseman, the third baseman is fielding the ball and they're making a double play feed to second base. There's a PO standing at second base with a bucket. All he's doing is catching the ball, putting it in the bucket. So that's what the third baseman are doing. There's also a guy hitting the shortstop. The shortstop at this point is fielding the ball, putting it in the bucket. He's put all he's, there's no throws for the shortstop here. The second baseman, the guy that's hitting to the second baseman, the second baseman's fielding, making throws to first. Fields make throws to first. We also, we have our POs that are, the PO will be standing on first base as well. So second baseman's fielding, making throws to first. Field, make throws to first. The first baseman, they're back on the edge of the grass. We have another guy. There's that fourth fungo guy. He's hitting ground balls to that first baseman that's deep on the grass, and he's working on his flip to first on a throwdown bag that's back behind where the real first base is. So as you can see, there is a ton going on. Third baseman, double play feeds. Shortstop, no throws. Second baseman are throwing to first. First baseman fielding ground balls, working their flips to first in a game. And then all we do is we just go through that sequence. The next sequence, third baseman are making throws across to first. 
shortstops, working on double play feeds to a pitch, a PO at second base. The second baseman, they're now making no throws. All right. Then the first baseman, they're working on a three, six start to a double play. And that goes on and on and on and on on down. So ultimately, here's what's going on. Each of those four positions are going to make every infield throw that they need to make. Then we get down to the bottom or get down as we're moving on. Then we do a complete double play. And all we're doing, we've got two coaches that are fun going. And one coach hits to third. One coach hits to short. One coach hits to third. One coach hits to short. One to third. One to short. One third. One to short. And it's just double plays from the left side of the infield. A complete double play. Double play. Double play. Then when we get down there, we'll go to, to, to first base at the right side of the infield. One coach hits to second. One coach hits to first. One coach to second. One to first. One to second. One to first. And these are full double plays where we're finishing up. And again, this is about three or four or five minutes. So then when we get done with that, we do, and this is something I never practiced until I went to Vandy, working on unassisted double plays. So one coach is hitting to third base. He's hitting that ball. You got to be good with the fungo here. All right. Mm -hmm. So one coach, one coach is hitting the ball down the third baseline. Third baseman stepping on the bag, making the throw across to first base. The next coach then hits a ball up the middle near second base. The shortstop goes to his glove side, fields, steps on second, throws to first. The coach that hit to third will then hit to the guy at second, where he's hitting him a backhand ball that's right there at second base. The second baseman's backhand, or if it's not a backhand, you know, goes through it, steps on second base, throws to first. And then the coach that hit to shortstop is now going to hit the first, where that first baseman's coming off the bag. The ball keeps him close to the bag. We all do it. He steps on the bag, tag, hollers tag, and goes to second base. So we're alternating there. So you're working all of the double plays that you may, that, that, that you have to deal with. And then the last thing we do there for our bandy drill is we'll bring our catchers to the plate and we'll bring all four infielders back up. We've got two coaches fungo and they alternate. The same coach hits to third and second. The other coach hits to short and first. And we're hitting it. They're up, they're up on the edge of the grass. They're up and we're hitting them a ground ball and it's a, it's a tag play at the plate. They've got to field it. Make a good throw to the catcher. Catcher, catcher catches the ball, puts that tag down, and I'm standing there at home plate. You know, and I'll throw a garbage can at them or something, and make them work on you know bracing themselves for contact that may happen at the plate. But they're working on their tag, so that's what we do with with the Vandy drill. And again, I know that is a lot of information that's thrown out there. Maybe at the end of this. Um, this interview, I may give you my email. If someone wants to reach out, I'll be glad to share anything I have there. Yeah, that's awesome. You also mentioned the uh, minute to win it game. The minute to win it game is basically, and again, uh, we got this from Bandy. Again, sure. the best things I've got, I, I've stole from people. It's for one minute. There are four stations, and each one of them is one minute. And the first minute, this is what we call station A. All right. And, and I'm with the, I, I'm a catching guy, so I'm with the catchers. All right. So for one minute, I'm throwing bunts to the catcher, you know, various places. Catcher pops out inside, inside, throws the ball to first base. Okay. Uh, so that's going on for a minute. While that's going on, all of our outfielders are in left field. All right. We hit a ball in the left center gap. Our outfielders run. 
get the ball off the fence and make that one that one hop throw to second base. The best, the you know, obviously the best throw they can make. So catchers are working with first baseman. Our outfielders, again, all of our outfielders are in left field at this time. We're hitting the ball in the left center gap. They're getting to the gap, cutting that ball, or not cutting it off, gets to the fence. They turn. They're making a good throw to second base. So we've got everybody engaged except for the shortstop and the third baseman. And we do a drill called the dumb runner, in which we never we never want to tag any of our players as a dumb runner. And a dumb runner is when you're at second base by yourself or you're the only guy on base at second base and there's a ground ball hit in front of you and you take off to go to third. <laughs> you know, and, and oh that that's called a dumb runner. So um you know, it's not something that we ever practice, mm-hmm. but it ha- it happens in a game. So we've got a guy that's hitting a ball to our shortstop in that five six hole, he's working over and our third baseman's working back to the bag. So they're working on getting that dumb runner. So for one minute, you've got first, you've got catchers working with first baseman, you've got outfielders working with second baseman, and you've got shortstops working with third base. We then go to station two, where catchers are blocking, runners trying to get a dirt ball read to second, catchers are blocking, trying to throw that ball to second base. So, so our catchers are now working with our middle infielders. Our first base, first baseman are at first base. We have a coach on the mound with the fungo, and he is, I mean, he's with a fungo from the mound, and he's trying to hit short hops to our first baseman, trying to trying to visualize or trying to replicate a bad throw at first. So they're trying to pick. The ball may be up line. The ball may be high. The ball may be in the dirt. The ball may be right at them. It's hard to hit that fungo exactly where you want to hit it. But our first baseman are working on, you know, bad throws at first base. Uh, our outfielders, are now doing the same drill they did in left field, but instead of throwing to second base, they're throwing balls to third. So for a minute, all of that's going on. Our catchers are working with middle infielders. Our first basemen are getting working on bad throws from a short fungo, and then our outfielders are throwing to third base. So that's one minute. The next thing we do is the catchers are now block, are blocking and throwing a guy out on a dirt ball read at third. So you've got catchers working with third basemen. Then, in the middle of the field, all of our outfielders are in center field. We have our shortstops, our second baseman, our outfielders, and our pitchers in what we call the Bermuda Triangle Drill, where we're trying to hit that fly ball right behind second base where our center fielder, our shortstop, and our second baseman are all going out to try to make that play. They've got to communicate, and then once that catch is made, whoever it is, they're going to catch, and they're going to finish the play at second base. It's a good reminder to teach your pitchers that when they see both middle infielders go, they've got to get to the bag. So they're working on the Bermuda Triangle drill for one minute. And then our first baseman, we then back the fungo up. I told you the first time we were doing it was short fungo. We then back the fungo up to almost the third baseline, and a coach is hitting scorchers or hitting bad throws at the first baseman. And again, they're working on, it may be a pick, it may be a ball up, it may be a ball up the line, whatever. So that goes on for another minute. And as you can tell, man, it's a lot going on in one minute. And then the last the last thing that we do in our minute to win it is all of our infielders are at third base. And we've got one coach that's hitting slow rollers and all infielders are making throws to first. While that's going on, we then put all of our outfielders in right field 
and we're hitting them a routine fly ball. This is not something that we're expecting them to throw, you know, eight feet from the wall. This is a routine base hit in front of them, a routine fly ball in front of them, and a guy's tagging from third base. So our outfielders are all in right field. They're they're making that throw to the plate. Catchers catch, and, and there's no cutoff man here. They got to be able to make that throw from short right. right. Uh, our catchers are at the plate and they're catching and they're tagging there. So there is a lot going on there. And, and again, once you get started, it takes a lot. It takes some time to get used to it. But you know, I just described about four minutes of practice time there. And think about what all the outfielders are doing. They're working on throws to second, throws throws to third those to home. Our infielders, think about what they're doing. They're working on receiving those from the outfield. They're working on Bermuda Triangle drill. Our out, our first basemen are working with the catcher. They're working on bad throws and catchers getting their, you know, getting some blocking in. They're getting throws into second, to third, to first. So man, there is a lot that goes on in a short period of time there. No, and if any of our listeners, uh, if you're still with us, press pause, go back about four minutes and start writing all of that stuff down. Man, that is that's fantastic. And and I'm I'm a nerd about practice organization, and that I am I I cannot wait to listen to that again just to hear all the different things that you guys are doing because that's awesome. Well, again, you know, if you want me to do it now or do it later, I'll be glad to give my email out and let people email me, and I'll I'll send what I have. I will say that I went to Vanderbilt about two or three years ago and filmed one of their practices. It's a bunch of different clips. Uh, I can share that as well. And it was just like how you how you described it. There was probably 10 coaches doing 10 separate things with every single position. And it, it was just really fun to watch. So I, I, I kind of was following you with all of that stuff. But once you sit down uh-huh. and you map it out, it makes complete sense. You're like, oh, that that I love that. So practice organization is awesome. Well, uh, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, again, we don't, you know, we don't want to go out and and stay three hours just to say we stayed three hours. If we can get our work done, we're done. Let's go home. Well, I'm with you. So, talk to yep. us uh, and give us some advice. So, what's the latest thing learned that you're really excited about? Well, I'm gonna be honest with you. It's something that two weeks ago I got into a discussion with some coaches from California, and it piqued my interest. And again, I'm a catching guy. I've already told you that, and. And I've always, you know, I, I think your catcher should be a tough guy. Your catcher should be the leader of your team. The catcher, you know, you, you work on mechanics, you work on mechanics, you work on mechanics of blocking. A lot of times I think it comes back to want to. Well, I had a coach from California a couple weeks ago ask me, do you teach your catchers to block the fastball? And I said, yes. And they said, do you not teach them to, to scoop it? Or do you not teach them to pick it? Excuse me, that's a better word. You're not teaching the picket. And I said, no, I don't. And they said, uh, well, let, w- why not? You know, not in a smart alley way, but we're just having a good discussion. And um, I said, well, I said, number one, it goes against everything that I've ever taught. And, you know, we got to talking and they said, well, think about this. What do you teach your runners? You teach your runners to read the down angle of a pitch from the mound, or that be a fastball whether it be breaking ball, whether it be change up, whatever it may be, you teach your runners to read the down angle and the good runners are gone before the ball hits the ground. I said, you're exactly right. They said, okay, well, let's turn it around the other side. You're a catcher, all right? When you block that breaking ball, when you block the change up, is it easier to block? And I said, yes, it's easier to block. 
They said, does the ball get farther away than a fastball? I said, no. I said, with the changeup, with the breaking ball, when you block it, a lot of times it's going to, it's going to fall or not fall, but it's going to land right underneath you, which is an easy pick or not pick, but pick the ball up and throw the guy out. So, well, think about a fastball. When you block a fastball, where's that ball going to go? I said, it's going to kick, it's going to kick back out in front of you six or seven, six or seven feet. They said, that's right. How many times is your, how many times is your catcher going to block a fastball and throw that good runner out? And I said, you're right, because that ball is going to, as I said, that ball is going to end up six or seven feet away. And that base runner's already got that dirt ball bag. It's not even a throw there. So they said, and, and, and I'm guilty of this. I've told our runners, you read dirt ball down. And if that catcher gets lucky and picks it and throws you out, we just tip our hat to them. I've said that many a time for many years. So now if we look at it from a catching perspective, most fastballs that we block are going to get away from our body out in front of us six or seven feet because of how hard the ball is being thrown. It's, it's hard to deaden that much as a catcher. So now why don't we take the only chance that we have and try to pick that and throw him out? So my next question was, well, how many times does that guy – that catcher that tries to pick that pitch, how many times does it get under his glove and goes to the backstop? He said, very rarely ever. And he said, coach, even if it does, it's go- it- it's still going to be 90 feet that he gets from first to second base. Hmm. And so that really got, it really got me thinking, and it really goes against everything that I've ever taught catchers, but it's something that I'm going to look at with my catchers and see. Does that make sense? What I'm what I'm telling you there? Definitely. So it's the first I had heard about it. I may be behind the times with coaching, but I, I'd never heard of that. But you know, how many times have I watched? How many times have I watched a major league game and see a catcher pick a fastball and think, "Oh, he's lazy." I mean, it happens all the time. But it really got me thinking. Maybe we maybe we should try to pick the fastball and give ourselves a chance to throw him out on a dirt ball rig. So. It's something that I haven't incorporated yet. I haven't, I haven't tried, but we're going to. But the only problem I have is, you know, somebody's going to be sitting in the stand saying, man, they've got some lazy catchers. They're not taught right. But it's something that if it gives our kids a, if it gives our catchers a better chance to throw out a dirt ball read, then I don't know. So to say it's something that I've learned that we're doing, that's not the case. It's something that I had a discussion that it piqued my interest that it's something I want to look at and maybe try out, and we'll see where it goes from there. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. And it sounds like you're a lifelong learner, which is just fantastic. But I want to know, because uh, you know I have aspirations of being a head coach someday, so what do you wish you had known uh, before you became the head coach at Huntsville? All of the other stuff, as I put it. You know, as coaches, we want to coach. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, that's what we want to do. We, we want to deal with practice plans and we want to deal with, you know, my my second baseman. You know, he, he's my eight hole hitter. I, I want to work on what he needs to do with the plate. You know, he's in our eight hole or nine hole. I don't want him hitting doubles. I mean, I do, but chances are he's at down the eight, nine hole for a reason. I want him to I want to, to work with him one on one and and get him to be more productive. But when I say all the other stuff. It's all of the administrative stuff that goes into to coaching. You know, it's things like, um, you know, our state, and, and I think it's a great thing that we've done. 
our state last year mandated, you know, we used to be on a innings pitch, you know, depending on how many innings pitched is, is, is how many days you needed rest. And I think most states have gone to this, but now it's a pitch count rule. And so, you know, we have to have, you know, an OPCR, which is an official pitch count recorder and everything has to be documented, you know, online for every single game that you play. And when you have three teams, that's three times, you know, more work that you have to do. You know, things like uh, before we play, we've got to, you know, and I'm, this is not relative to me. This is not specific to me. This is this is specific to, to every coach in the country. I know in Alabama, but to every coach in the country, I'm sure, you know, we have, you have to list your the state website. We've got to put in rosters for all 65 kids and check grades, and we've got to put on every game that we have. And in Alabama, our varsity, we can play 32 games plus unlimited. And this is 7A. We're 7A. We're the largest classification. We can play 32 games and have unlimited spring break. So, you know, we can, we can play a pretty, a pretty large number of games. Mm-hmm. Our JV and freshman, our JV and freshman team can play 26 games. Again, it's a little bit different for 7A than it is one through 6A, but we can play 26 games plus unlimited spring break. So, you're looking at over 115, 20 games that you've got to put in into the sta- into our state website to, to generate a contract with the other team. You know things like when we go on trips. You know we've got to we've got to fill out field trip requests through our school. Uh, you know buses for all three of our teams going to and from games. You know that kind of stuff really, really is, is the administrative work really can can get to you and. Uh, you know, we try to get all that done up front so that when we get into our season, we're not doing a lot of that. We're, we're, we're spending more time coaching. So that's, that, that's been the biggest thing that I wish I had, I had known before becoming a head coach. And I think the old saying is when you're an assistant, you get 10% administrative work and 90% on the field work. And then when you become a head coach, you flip it. Is that about, is that pretty accurate? That is exactly right. And that's why. And, and I want to say this again, that's why having great assistant coaches around you is so important. And thank goodness at Huntsville High School, we've got some tremendous assistant coaches. And I don't have to worry about what they're doing. You know, we've got guys that are over our infield and guys that are that are over our hitting. You know, they can go do their thing. I trust them. They'll do fine. And, and that helps a tremendous amount. You know, one of the, one of the big things is, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I've been involved with USA Baseball for the last three years, uh, two years as an assistant coach. And one year this past year, I was the head coach of the 12U team. And that was one of the great things about USA Baseball is you don't worry about any of that. They have they handle every bit of it. The only thing that you do is coach. And that's I mean, that was <laughs> that really was a light, you know, it, that we didn't have to worry about any. You know, they typed up our practice. You know, I, obviously we gave them our practice plans. They typed them up for us. The buses, the airplanes, everything was done by USA Baseball. All we had to do was coach. And that was a <laughs> that was very refreshing. Yeah, that's awesome. Two more things before you go, because I know, yes, sir. I know most of our coaches. They we, we love resources, like you said. The the best coaches out there steal information, and I'm completely on board with that. I don't think I've ever come up with an original idea. I've just stolen everything. So give us some stuff that we can steal from you as far as your favorite resources and books go. Well, number one, you know, one of a great resource that we've had, I've already referenced them a lot, is Vanderbilt University. You know, they're a resource for us. 
going up and watching them practice. Obviously, I listen to your podcasts ahead of the curve. I mean, you can learn. Again, we're talking about resources and learning from everybody. That's what lifelong learners do is they, they find ways, they find avenues to, to learn things. And your podcast is one of them. Two books uh, is The Energy Leadership by Bruce Schneider. One of our players, their parents gave me that book and thought that they just they thought of me when they bought that. And they bought that. It's called The Energy Leadership by Bruce Schneider. It's, you know, obviously the, the title says enough. And then the, the, the net, one of the big baseball books that I use is The Mental Game of Baseball, mm-hmm. by, written by uh, Henry Dorfman and Carl Kuehl, both obviously longtime baseball guys. But, you know, that mental game of baseball, you know, we talk about it all the time. That, that's how, how can you handle the mental part of it? How can you handle failure? And how can you handle success? Because you're going to have both of them. And, you know, I, I learned a long time ago, you be humble or be humble. Either you be humbled or you're going to be humbled. And, you know, the, the mental aspect of baseball, the mental game of baseball, um, you know, that, there are lots of things in there on how to deal with success, how to deal with failure. That's that mental game. You know, I like to watch and I, I make it a point to tell our players, watch a major league baseball game and watch a guy that makes two errors back to back. You would never know it. You know, I like to be able to look at a guy and, know, and not know, look at him and how he carries himself on the field and not know if he's 0 for 2 with two strikeouts or 2 for 2 with two doubles. You know, you've got you've got to be able to control the mental aspect of the game and and that was that's one of my favorite books. I've got some great there's some great information in there. I love it. And this is one that I just added, so I guess we'll see how good of a question it is, but coming from a school with a very large budget to the current school that I'm at, which we get a lot of the different things that we need, but the town of Frisco has 10 schools, so there's only so much uh, money to go around, so, so we've had to get somewhat uh, resourceful. So what's the most useful coaching tool you bought for less than $100? Well, you know, we, we have five high schools here in our city, so, you know, we, we our, thank goodness our booster club does a great job of going out and, and raising funds for our baseball program. But this is going to sound weird to your answer to your question here. The most useful tool that I've bought, I really didn't buy it. It was free. The Huddle Technique app. Uh, and, and the reason why I say that, number one, it, it's free. But, you know, I, I mentioned going in our building. I can go in there and pull out my phone if a kid is struggling. And I can video right there. And when he gets out, I can show him that right there. And, you know, obviously there are, you know, there's the, the things that you, you know, you can add what you want, circles, lines, you know, see where weight is, is weight out front, all that stuff. You can show him and slow it down to just, you know, frame by frame. And I don't have to wait until after practice. And then hopefully he gets back in the next, he gets back in the ne- his next time in the cage and he's able to, to sense what we were talking about because you know, like I know, you can tell a kid what he's doing and you can tell a kid what he's doing and you can tell him, you know, that he's letting that back elbow get away from his body and his, his, you know, his back elbow slots away, which is creating a long swing. But until he sees it, it's hard for him to correct it. And so the reason why I say that is because just it gives you instant feedback. You know, when I don't have to wait till after practice, you know, a lot of times I will, I'll video a pitcher when we're scrimmaging outside and show it to him in between innings before he goes back out. So, again, it's a freebie, but it's very resourceful and gives you instant feedback and lets you correct some things right there. 
Definitely. I, I use it as well, and they actually have an overlay part where you can, if you have your camera in the same angle, you can overlay two different videos to show them what they did, uh, what they did different. So we use it for off-speed pitches versus fastball pitches and trying to tunnel. And so that's been a yeah. really, really good addition too. I don't know if you've used that feature before, but but I'm with you on the huddle technique. It, it it's great. Yep, I know. It's again, it's free, but hey, that's that's the best. That's the best thing about it, right? Being free. Hey, if it's for free, it's for me. I'm I'm with you. That's exactly right. Well, Coach Sharp, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and share so much great actionable information for our listeners who would love to get in touch with you. Where can we find you online? On my Twitter. I am at David Sharp 455. That's David Sharp 455. On Facebook, it's David Sharp. Uh, Instagram is D4Sharp. But mainly a lot of things there off Twitter, David Sharp 455. And again, I do want to say for anybody that, uh, and I hope you don't mind me putting this out there. Go ahead. Um, for, for anybody that is interested, that I can send you in an Excel spreadsheet, I can send you those bands that what we call the bandy drill. And the minute to win it, my email address is the letter D, the number four, sharp, S-H-A-R-P, at gmail.com. That's D4sharp at gmail.com. And I want to thank you for allowing me on, and the listeners can get something out of it. And again, you do a great job with the podcast, and I continue to look forward to listening and learning as I have in the past. That's awesome. So you've got an open mic, and thank you for your kind words, by the way. But is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? You know, uh, I, I guess one thing I want to say is, as coaches, you know, we I, I mentioned this previously. As coaches, we spend a lot of time away from our, our loved ones, our family. And as I mentioned earlier, I've got two wonderful kids. And our son, my son, actually played for us at Huntsville High School. He's now going into his sophomore year at a community college here at Calhoun Community College. My daughter is a junior at Huntsville High School, who is uh, one of our baseball managers. She does a fantastic job. Uh, my, my wife's at every game and is just ultra supportive of myself and of our baseball program. But one thing, if I could tell people, is to make sure that you don't take away from your family. To, you're going to have some sacrifices. We know that. But every chance that you have as a coach, make sure that your family gets you know, get your time. And, you know, I follow Gene Chiswick. I know this is going to be very off the wall, but Gene Chiswick on Twitter, he used to be the head football coach at Auburn and he's now a commentator. He's, uh, he had a tweet a few weeks ago that I saw that hit home with me and is something that I, li- that I try to keep in my head now. And he says, make sure that your family gets the best of you, not the rest of you. And that really hit home with me. Make sure your family gets the best of you, not the rest of you. Meaning, don't just give what you have left to your family. Make sure they get the best of you, not what's left. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. I hope you enjoyed the show and got something from our outstanding guest. If you're wanting to listen to past shows and get alerts for new ones, Ahead of the Curve is now available on the Texas High School Baseball Coaches Association app, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Please consider writing a review or rating the show so other coaches can find and stay ahead of the curve.